0: I'm the campus minister here, uh, and we've been doing this thing every now and then where we're trying to describe kind of what we're about as a ministry, and we just call it REF is like dot, 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 and tonight what I want to do is say REF is like dot, 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 a good pair of jeans. What do I mean by that? Uh, think about jeans. Jeans are not, you can't go to the store and just, hey, give me some jeans, like you have to know, jeans are not one size for all. Jeans, you have to kind of know yourself, you have to know your body. You have long legs, short legs. Are you a little like me, a little stocky, a little tanky, uh, or are you a little skinnier? Uh, jeans is not one size of it at all. You have to sort of tailor it to yourself, to your body. How is RF like that? RF is like that because you know sometimes we say get plugged in, are you plugged into a ministry? Kind of challenge that for a second. Of course, I know we mean like get involved. That's awesome, but you're not sort of something to be plugged into a system. You're not something, not all of you, you you come in all shapes and sizes. And part of what ministry is about, part of what the gospel is about, is that Jesus meets you where you are, not where you should be. And we're called to be a ministry that meets one another where we are, not where we should be. There's a sense in which that's not a one-size-fits-all ministry. We want to meet you exactly where you are. Some of you are here, and you're skeptical. You think maybe Christianity is not for me, but I'm kind of curious. Or maybe my friend just drugged me here and promised to take me to Wendy's and get a frosty afterwards. And if you did that, can I meet you afterwards? If you brought a friend like that, I would love to meet you and grab frosties together with your be best friends. Um, and some of you're here and you want to know more what it, what it looks like to follow Jesus on campus faithfully. However you come tonight, we welcome you, and we hope that Jesus you find or you have to be a place where Jesus meets you where you are and where people meet you where you are, not where you should be. That being said, I want to move into what I'm going to talk about tonight. We've been doing a series called Portraits of Jesus from the Gospel of John, and we are looking week by week at Jesus. And we're hoping, what I'm hoping will happen, even tonight, is that you would see Jesus or meet Jesus afresh. Sometimes we have our own notions that we come to about Jesus, and Scripture, if we let it, will really challenge it. And I hope tonight that happens. And I want to look at a passage from John 5. And I want to say at the outset here, this whole sermon is incredibly, it's got Tim Keller's fingerprints all over it. I'm incredibly held by him here. But John 5, I'm going to read it for us, verses 1 to 18. Here's God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda. Which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, when the water is stirred up, and while I am going another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The Jews, I don't know if you know this, they had like 39 rabbinical laws about the Sabbath. This was one of them, not to pick up or carry heavy things. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, And I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would, much like you met this man and asked him this incredible question many, many, many years ago. That you would meet us here tonight. That you would ask us the same question. Do we want to be well, do we want for you to heal us? And Lord, I pray that, that as we think through this whole text and as we look at it, Lord, that you would show us that you truly are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just as you absolutely transformed this man's life, that you can do the same in ours. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. I want to start tonight with a question, and it's, it's a weird question it's what's the best question you've ever been asked? What's the best question anyone's ever asked you? For me, I remember I was, when I was in Statesboro, Georgia, I did our there at Georgia Southern for about five years, and I started toward the end of my time there going to a counselor in Augusta, and so I would drive over to Augusta and meet up at this pizza place, uh, Pizza Joint, I think it was called, which actually we have one in Columbia, too. They make an incredible barbecue chicken pizza. Ask Scott Behan, and it will change your life. <laughs> but we're talking about not pizza tonight, as incredible as it is, Jesus is better, and we're talking about him. And the question the counselor asked me was simply this, what do you do with your loneliness? And that question is still one of my favorite questions to ask you guys, to ask friends, what do you do with your loneliness? But Jesus in this passage, it's a similar question, but it's a better question. And what I want to do tonight is think about the question. The question is simply this, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? And before we kind of get into what I think he's driving at, I want to sort of set up what Jesus is doing here. Three things I want you to see from this passage about what Jesus, his interaction with this man. First, I want you to see where he asked this question. Second, I want you to see who, or from English people, to whom he asked this question. Thirdly, I want to think for you, for you with a second about where this question leads him in this kind of controversy and encounter with the Jews. So I think of those three things, where he asked it, uh, who he asked it to. And where it leads in this kind of controversy with the Jews. So first, think with me where he asks it. Now this is the part of the sermon that's a little bit historical, and this is the part of the talk that's a little bit, stay with me because it's going somewhere. But this pool, the pool of Bethesda, is actually really, really important for us. And it's not just important, if you know the story, if you read the passage, part of what you have to know about this pool is it's is pulled by the sheep in Jerusalem, and what would happen is the waters, without any kind of wind or without any kind of natural phenomenon, the waters every day would just simply start stirring up. We don't know why. All early scripture, all John says about it, if you're looking, is he kind of says this happened, and people would jump in as the waters were being stirred because they thought if they would get into the water while the water was stirring that they would be healed. And so you have tons and tons and tons of lame, crippled, invalid people laying by this pool, waiting to get in, waiting for someone to take them in when the water stirred. Now what's interesting is that historically, for a long, long time, this pool was really controversial. In fact, 18th, 19th century, I don't know if you know your history at all, but really in Germany especially, there was this great attack kind of against the Bible. And they used this pool to say, listen, the Bible is not historical. You can't really trust the Bible. In fact, this pool that John talks about, nowhere, there was no, kind of two things you need to know about. It. Number one, no other like, contemporary historical account talked about this pool. So John, or someone later than John, obviously made this whole story up because this pool just, just does not exist in other books of the day. Two... If that's not suspicious enough, that the Bible is the only place where it's, you see it, you don't see it in this other historical accounts. So the second thing you have to understand is that in the day, the architecture of the day, there was no such thing as a pool with five colonnades. Now, what a colonnade was is basically what we know as a porch. So think about your favorite southern houses. Porches are incredible. Drink sweet tea on a porch. You know, do fun things. Rocking chairs on a porch it's great. So this pool had five. And in that architecture of the day, that was unheard of. So they said, for those two reasons, this is totally made up. This must have been written much, much after Jesus' time by someone who clearly doesn't know, A, that this pool never existed according to other historical accounts, and B, pools with five colonnades, five roof colonnades just didn't exist in the architecture of that day. And so it was one of those things, for a long time, scholars looked at it and said, 18th, 19th century, this is why you can't trust the Bible. It's not real. It's a legend. It's made-up account. To, to make us feel better about us, ourselves, to give us this inspirational figure like Beowulf. I don't know if you read Beowulf in your English classes, but Jesus is essentially Beowulf. He's a legend. He's, he's, he's been made up. These stories are made up. You can't really trust him. And it went like that for a long time until this time of year, 1888, archeo- archaeological dig in Jerusalem. And they find underneath this church called Church of St. Anne's, this these pool, this pool. It's two basins. What they found was two basins with a ridge between them. And as they kept digging, what they found was that there were actually two colonnades in each basin, in each pool, and actually another colonnade in the middle of this ridge, which made for the fifth one. And it was one of those things where it was a huge discovery. It was kind of one of those things. It's one of those moments where you sort of say, Tim Keller talks about it. He says, it's one of those moments where you look at it and you say, aha, maybe I can trust the Bible. Maybe the Bible is actually telling you the truth. But I want you to think, why does this matter? Like, this whole, this whole question of can you trust the Bible, why in the world does it matter? Why don't you think about it like this? If the Bible is just good advice, if it's just a legend that's meant to inspire you to live the kind of life Jesus lived, then his, the, his, the history of it doesn't matter. The sheet, this pool doesn't matter. If it exists or not, doesn't matter. Because the point of the story is to inspire you. The point of the Bible is either two things, to instruct you on in how to live a moral life or to, in, in, to inspire you to live it. If the Bible is good advice. But that's not what Christianity says. Christianity says that what it's about is not good advice, but good news. Good news about what Jesus has done in space and time to live the life you could never live, to die the death you deserve to die. And because of that, the history matters. This story matters. Because if it doesn't matter, do you understand? If, it, if, if it's not true, if we can't trust it, then there's no good news. Think with me. For, let me give you an example. This is a silly example. Just, just track with me. Imagine after RUF, I have your number. And after RUF, you go home, you're climbing in the bed, and I call you up. Which will never happen because I don't use the phone. But let's just pretend for, for example's sake. I call you up and I say, hey, uh, John, uh, I need to talk to you. Your parents' house caught on fire. They were there. The good news is your parents were rushed to Sisters of St. Mercy Hospital where Dr. Goodman is taking incredible care of them. They're in recovery, they're okay. So imagine you hang up the phone with me and you Google Sisters of St. Mercy Hospital, nothing comes up. Dr. Goodman, nothing comes up. And you call me back and say, uh, Google Sisters of St. Mercy and Dr. Goodman, and nothing comes up. And I said, ah. I made that up. Your parents tragically died in the fire. I just wanted you to feel better. That takes out the news. The news matters. Christianity, listen, Christianity is good news about what Jesus has done. That you might be saved. Christianity is not good advice about what you must do to make yourself worthy to God. Christianity is good news about what he has done to make you worthy, an unworthy person to make you worthy through his life, through his death. You have to have to get this. So, first, where he asks important The pool matters. Second, think with me for a second about who he asks it to. And this is the kind of the longer part of what I want to talk about tonight. Think with me for a second about this man. And I want you to think about how you and I are kind of like this man. Now, first, what do we know and what do we not know about this man here? All we really know is simply this. For 38 years, he has struggled with this debilitating... He's been able to walk. We don't know if he was born this way. We don't know if there was a tragic accident or injury that happened. We don't know if he developed a sickness. Like, we have no idea if he's 38 here. We have no idea if he's 62. We have no really idea except for 38 years of his life, which is longer than any of us have been alive... For 38 years, he has not been able to walk, and what he's been doing is he's been kind of laying by this pool, waiting for someone to put him in the water when it stirs. But here's what we kind of do know about him: is that you and I, if you you know your heart, if you know yourself, are a lot like him. Think with me: three ways that you and I are like this man. with me for a second. Here's the first, and these are three ways. This is sort of the litmus test of the night: is do you know your own heart? because if you do know you're in your heart this man moves from a, a sort of sad tragic example of something kind of pathetic to something that you really relate to here's the first one that we're like him he didn't go to Jesus Jesus came to him I want you to hear that again he did not go looking for Jesus Jesus came looking for him he didn't seek to find Jesus Jesus sought and found him you know, it's funny. When, if you know your own heart, you know this is true in your story of how you became a Christian. That it wasn't that you were seeking Jesus. It was that Jesus found you and absolutely turned your life upside down. Paul says, what, what, you know, this idea. Paul in Romans 3 says this incredible thing that offends us. First he says, no one is good. And then we can kind of say, okay, I get it. Like, some of us have stolen things. Like, when we were little, like, I stole it. Uh, I remember the first bad thing I ever did that my mom caught me doing is I stole a little thing, a chapstick, from a store. Okay, I get it. I'm not a good person. But then Paul says, no one seeks after God. And if you're thinking, if you're listening to Paul, you think, whoa, 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 no one seeks after God. You're saying no one is going to church, raising their hands in worship, praising him. You're saying no one is praying, trying to find him. You're saying no one is seeking. And that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is no one is seeking the biblical God. No one is seeking the parts of scripture that tell us hard things about God's sovereignty, not just over history, but his sovereignty over you. I want you to think about this. That no one, when we open scripture and we sort of see these hard passages, like in the Old Testament or even in Paul, Romans 9, a really hard passage. I remember reading Romans 9 for the first time in my life with friends and hating when, when Paul says, God will have mercy and whom he will have mercy. And I said, no, I do not like that. And my friend said, I don't think you've read your Bible enough. And I said, who are you to tell me if I've read my Bible enough? And he was right. I had not read my Bible enough. It reminds me of this idea that no one seeks after God, the biblical God. God as, he, God as he presents himself in scripture, not God as we wish him to be. That's a huge difference. I remember the first time my wife, she uh, gives me permission to tell the story. She condones the story. I'm not in any way making fun of my beautiful, lovely Lady, friend, wife. She is both those things. she She's so many things to me—a lady, a friend, a wife, a companion, my soulmate. I to keep going, but I remember the first time vividly that I saw her without makeup, and it was shocking. I, so probably you don't know my wife She is a true blonde And so she has blonde eyelashes And I remember I was dating her I was, We were at USC I was picking her up for a date I'd gotten there a little early Which is a, I should have known I was dumb But I should have known better Got there early Was walking into the door She's walking past Hasn't put on makeup yet And I thought it was a different person at first so I was like And then I did that thing I was like Oh no that's her Because she has blonde eyelashes So if you know If any of you have blonde eyelashes Like mascara makes a huge difference In how it, it, you, you look and I think, I think about that moment when I think the first time I read certain passages of Scripture. I was like, whoa, let's put some makeup on that guy. Let's, let's put some makeup on that passage. And that's what he's saying. No one seeks after God as he reveals himself in Scripture. You have to understand that you don't seek out he seeks you. You didn't find Jesus, Jesus found you. Two, this is in some ways more important, especially if you are a Christian. Here's, this is huge. He wants. This is huge, huge, huge. He wants Jesus. Here's what this man wants. He wants Jesus to help him get into the pool. He doesn't yet realize Jesus is the pool. He wants Jesus to help him find the healing where he thinks he should find it. He doesn't yet realize that Jesus is the healing. That Jesus is what he's been looking for. Now, how do you and I do this? Here's typically, typically, if, in most stories I hear, how you became a Christian. Usually, it goes something like this. Usually your life in some way falls apart. So your knight in shining armor turns out to be a troll and it breaks your heart and you seek Jesus. Or uh, you end up in rehab somewhere. Like you end up addicted and your life is crumbling. Or your GPA, for those of you who have been around a while, does that thing where it's like a little little John song where it just gets low, real low. And your life is falling apart, so you seek Jesus. And so what happens was when you become a Christian, if that's how you meet Jesus... What you do is you seek for Jesus to help you put your life back together as you think it should be. So you, you ask Jesus to help you get the girl back. You ask Jesus to help you get clean. You ask Jesus to help you get your GPA up, get your grades up. But do you see what you're doing? You still think Jesus is a means to an end. That your life will begin once Jesus gives you the thing that you've always been looking for your whole life. Listen, this is how some gone, this is how I got into ministry. I love people liking me. The first, the first, one of the first verses that really hit home when I became a Christian was Galatians 1.10. Are you still trying to please man or are you, are you seeking to please God? If you were still trying to please man, you would no longer be a servant of Christ. And I can tell you part of what keeps, part of what got me into ministry is I like people liking me. And what better way to like people liking you than, than like being with people and like, you know, trying to be the pastor to them and like make their lives better. Some of you, you know, some of you get into ministry because some of you will get into ministry or could get into ministry because you want to feel important. You've never felt important in your whole life and you get into it because you, and you get you want to, you get in a leadership position because you want to feel important. Do you see what we're doing? We're asking Jesus. We're, we still think Jesus is a means to a better life instead of understanding that Jesus is our life. Colossians, Paul says in Colossians, my life is hidden with Christ above. The, the key phrase there is my life is is with Christ. Where are you seeking to get Christ to give you the kind of life you want instead of realizing that Christ is your life? Where are you trying to get Christ to help you into the pool instead of realizing that Christ is the pool? Third, third we're like this man. After This is where the story gets hard. Is after, after this is the key word, after Jesus heals him, he still is selfish, Self-absorbed, and he still doesn't know what to do with Jesus. doesn't really want Jesus messing with his life after Jesus changes him. If you look at it, if you're looking at the passage, when Jesus, the first thing he does is when Jesus heals him and slips away, he, he, the Pharisees come, the Jews come, and they're challenging, saying, who did this? You're not allowed to do this on the Sabbath. And instead of kind of taking some of the ownership, he points says, this guy did it. And if that's not bad enough, later in the passage, you get the vibe that he's either really dumb or he's really, really fearful of men. I think it's the second. That he is more afraid of being on the out with these Jewish leaders than he is being on the in with Jesus. And so Jesus finds him in the temple and he says, listen, listen, you're healed. You're walking. Go and sin no more. He says, do not sin so that anything, nothing worse may happen to you. Now that verse is fascinating. It's Jesus saying his... Crippledness was a result of sin. No, we know if you read the book of Job, suffering in our lives is not always a result of sin. It can be. It can be. Psalm 32, David says, I am severely depressed. Why? Because I have hidden my sin from you and I have not confessed it. But scripture also says Job's counselors, God rebukes Job's counselors so hard for going to Job and saying, you are in suffering because you have sinned against God. And God at the end says, no. No. Do not pretend to understand the suffering of my servant, Job. So there's this tension here. But here's this man. He's a people pleaser. And so as soon as Jesus reveals himself and says, him, my name is Jesus. I'm the one who healed you. He takes Jesus' name to the Pharisees and says, this is the guy. Now, what I want you to see is that you and I, this, this scripture, part of what I love about scripture is it is not embarrassed to show us the brokenness of the quote-unquote heroes of the faith. You cannot read scripture, any hero of scripture, Paul, Peter, Abraham, Moses, all of them deeply flawed, all of them deeply, deeply, deeply selfish. Do you remember Abraham when he's traveling with his wife Sarah and he's so afraid of them knowing that they're married that he lies and then the men take Sarah and are about to sleep with her before God reveals in a vision that it's Abraham's wife? He's a liar we talk about David, we just talked about David in Psalm 32 David was what we would call a peeping Tom David was so full of lust that he was just trying to find any kind of picture that he could drink up of women the men in scripture are deeply, deeply broken the women in scripture are deeply, deeply broken I love uh, Simpsons, there's an episode where Homer is reading the Bible and he, he puts it down and here's what he says all of these people are messed up except this one guy And I think, yes, that'll preach. Because the only hero of Scripture is Jesus. Because you look at this story and you think, this is not how the story should go. Jesus is supposed to meet this man, make him walk again, and this man, the first thing he's supposed to do is get up on his feet and bow down and praise. And that's not what he does. He gets up, doesn't even know Jesus' name, walking around in his selfishness, finds him in the temple, knows his name, takes it out of his fear of men to to the people who were going to get Jesus killed. That's not how the story should go. And you've got a story that hasn't gone the way it should go. You've got a story full of brokenness. You've got a story after you've known Christ that's full of selfishness, that's full of your own self-interest, that's full of fear. And do you see tonight your need for Jesus? That Christianity, again, is not something you do to make yourself worthy of God, but something that Jesus comes into your life and says, Of course, of course you need me. That's why I went to the cross for you. So first, where he he asked the questions to pull. Second, who he asked it to, and that's the question, right? This is the best question that's ever been asked. He asked this man, he asked us tonight, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Do you want me to not be a consultant in your life, but to be the king? Do you want me not to be some example that you look to for inspiration, but to be a savior? Do you want, and the answer for being honest is yes and no. Do you want to be made well? Third, last thing I want you to see, is what the whole question leads to. And it leads to this incredible controversy. This what we call, he has several Sabbath controversies throughout the Gospels where Jesus is essentially gets in trouble with the religious leaders for breaking the Sabbath the way that they, should, they think it should be kept. Now, I already kind of mentioned, why are the, why are the, are the Jewish leaders so here? There are two reasons. The first reason, as I already mentioned, is they had this rule, 39 rules of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of the things that you couldn't do was to lift or carry heavy physical things. And part of, why, part of why they're mad is this guy, he's walking around carrying a bed. And they say, ah, no, you're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath. But the real reason they're mad is something deeper. It's what Jesus says about himself. Because they knew that the only person that could work on the Sabbath was who? God. God is the only one, that. in. Scripture that could work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, if you look at verse 18, My Father is working, and I am working even until now. They knew what he was saying. He was saying, yeah, I'm God. I am the Son of God sent by the Father. He and my Father and I have been working from the beginning. I was there at creation. I was there when the world was made. I was there on the seventh day when we rested. Now what's interesting is, why thinking about the Sabbath the idea of we rest. And usually if you've grown up in a tradition that honors the Sabbath, the idea is almost solely focused on physical rest. But if that's true, then how did God rest in the Sabbath? Because God doesn't get tired. Scripture says he never sleeps nor slumber. He doesn't need a nap. There's got to be more to this idea of rest. And the idea of rest is simply this. When it says that God rested, what does it mean? It means that he was at peace enjoying the beauty of what he had made. When, it, when Genesis says God rested on the seventh day, it means he was at peace. He was he was resting in the sense that his heart was at peace, enjoying the things that he had made, the work of his hands. Now, it's interesting when we think about work. Usually, it's hard for us. For those of us who are driven, or for those of us who are not driven, in everyone in this room. Usually, you either overwork, and your work has the, you work hard. What you work hard to please your parents. You work hard to prove yourself. You work hard to prove yourself to the world. You work hard to prove yourself to yourself. Some of you don't work hard because you're so shut down because the idea of work is just you feel like a failure. You can't deal with the shame of not succeeding. And how in the world do you rest from that? Like, how do you rest from what Tim Keller calls the work underneath the work? The reason that you work hard. The reason you want to be successful. The reason you want people to think well of you. How do you rest from the work beneath the work? The things that drive you to work hard. And when he says, unless you find the rest that Jesus is offering here. The one who worked to the point where he says, what, on the cross he says, it is finished. What is finished? The work of your need to prove yourself. The work of your need to justify your existence. The work of your need to make something of your life. It is finished. Jesus has lived a life you could never live. Jesus has died to death that you deserve to die. And what he invite, So in Matthew 11 when he says, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and you will find rest. What he's saying is what? I'm the true Sabbath. I'm the one who worked the work you could never do, that you might come to rest in my work. And when you begin to rest in the work of Christ, it frees you up to work in all of your work unto him, to work at it unto him. I love, there's a, so why don't we do this? We don't do this because we're afraid, I think. We don't do this because we're we're afraid if we give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus that he is going to destroy our lives and destroy our happiness. The story I'll close with this. The story that I always love is out of this exchange in the silver chair in Chronicles of Narnia. And there's that scene, if you know that, that, that series, there's that scene between Jill and Aslan, when, when Jill kind of meets or sees Aslan for the first time. And I'm just going to close by reading this exchange because I love it. Aslan says, Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that Without noticing it, she had come a step near. "'Do you eat girls?' she said. "'I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the lion. "'It didn't say this if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. "'It just said it. "'I daren't come and drink,' said Jill. "'Then you will die of thirst,' said the lion. "'Oh, dear,' said Jill, coming another step near. "'I suppose I must go and look for another stream, then.' There is no other stream to the lion. Why are you and I afraid to give ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus? It's that deep fear that's been in our hearts since the garden. That if I do this, does God really have my best? Does he really love me? And I want you to see Jesus on the crossing. It is finished. And he's saying it so you can lay your deadly doing down, down at his feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. It is finished. It is finished. What more could you ever do? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us in you find the kind of rest that we've been looking for. Find the kind of healing, the kind of wholeness that we've been longing for. Lord, you alone can do this in our lives. We ask for it even tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.